Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 39. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? (laughs) And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed." But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he said, the old is good. This is God's word. Uh, thank you, Susan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. It's uh, so good to see so many of you this morning. We continue in a series uh, on the Gospel of Luke. We're back to a familiar theme this morning. We can't seem to get away from him as much as I would like to because it catches me every time. In this gospel, though, it's here all the time on every page just about, and the theme is joy. And really, this is a contrast, this passage, between the grumbling, you saw that word there, of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and the eating and the drinking and the joy of Jesus and his disciples. C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. I like that. That joy is the serious business of heaven, that... that Jesus aims to make us full of joy, and we see that here, and so we've got to talk about it yet again this morning. And so I'd like to get right to it, just around this theme of joy. Here's what I want to look at. I want to see, first, that we were made for joy. That really is part of what we learn here, that that we were made for joy, and Jesus has come to bring it. Secondly, though, why then, if we're made for it, why is it so hard for us to come by? Why do we find it so hard? And then lastly, How can we then find and keep the joy that Jesus offers to us? So if we were made for it and if it's hard for us, then ultimately what this passage teaches us is how in the gospel Jesus has worked to give us this joy, that our joy may be full, that it may be complete, that we may live all of the days of our lives with this joy. So let's look at this this passage together, if you would, this morning, Uh, beginning with this first point, what I've called new wine, or that we've been made for joy. The promise... The promise of this passage is that the tenor of our life with Jesus is celebration and joy, not austerity or asceticism. Now look at the occasion for the teaching here, okay? If you look up in verse 30, the Pharisees and the scribes are grumbling. They're grumbling because of what they see happening around Jesus as his ministry takes off. He's, first of all, hanging around with a very sordid crowd, tax collectors and other quote-unquote sinners, and When these people get together, there's lots of eating and drinking and feasting. Now, you have to understand something about the Pharisees to understand, and their understudies, to understand why they're so concerned about this. They were the social and political conservatives of their day. 
They were very interested in family values and such things. They were hardworking, God-fearing people, but they had some real concerns about Jesus' ministry. So they asked, verse 33, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, I need to translate that for you, maybe. Here's kind of what they mean. They mean religion is serious business for us, but not you. You're way too casual. There's way too much excess for our taste. Too much fun stuff going on. It's one of my favorite things in the world to see people laughing in church and say, hey, this is church. Stop having so much fun. Right? It's not supposed to be like that. That's, 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 their, that's their deal. And do you remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist? Uh, he said, uh, in one of the Gospels, he said, what do you, why, do you, why did you go out into the wilderness? Who did you go to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in the king's house. But there's something very stark about John the Baptist. Uh, and Mark goes on to picture him as clothed with camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey. So John, who they're, they're discussing, you know, the disciples of John and how there's a f- similarity between the way his disciples lived and the way the Pharisees lived that's now being blown up by the way Jesus and his friends live together. And John was the model of austerity and simplicity and discipline. He lived in the desert. He dressed in camel hair. He ate insects and wild honey. The Pharisees had a similar lifestyle. They fasted twice a week on Mondays and then again on Thursdays. They lived a meticulously disciplined lifestyle, avoiding any kind of frivolity or excess, which is what they see in Jesus that has them so concerned about his ministry. Instead of praying and fasting, Jesus and the community gathering around him seemed to spend all their time eating and drinking. Now, I need a a note here, okay, that I need to make sure that we're all on the same page. Really what, what Luke is going after here is asceticism, not discipline. And let me define those things. Asceticism is an extreme form of self-denial that rejects any kind of self-indulgence or excess. And maybe probably the best example uh, from modern days would be Mahatma Gandhi, who, uh, as he you know, led this revolution in India in the middle of the 20th century, refused to ride the trains in first or second class, but rode with the poorest of the poor. And when he would go stay in a city, he would always stay with very, very poor people because he, he was an ascetic. He denied, he he threw away any sense of luxury or indulgence or excess. Discipline is a good thing. To be disciplined is a good thing. But historically, the church has really thumbed its nose on this this impulse towards going too far into asceticism. The teaching here then is that life with Jesus, though it is full of discipline, should also be full of celebration and rejoicing. There's something wrong, see, with the Pharisees and the religious leaders that in their sternness they oppose the eating and drinking of Jesus and his disciples. There should be celebration that accompanies Jesus. We saw it in Matthew chapter 21 when we read uh, in our community Bible reading this past week where he's coming into the city of Jerusalem and the crowds are hailing him and they're singing his praise and the Pharisees are again uncomfortable with this, and they come and they say, can't you make them be quiet? And Jesus said, I can't. And the reason why I can't is if they do not sing, the rocks will start to cry out. Because the whole creation is humming with anticipation of the coming of the king. And here he is, and the only way to greet him is with feasting and celebration and worship. And so what we see is there's something very wrong with us that we find joy so elusive. There's something very broken about us that like the Pharisees, 
and the religious leaders, we are not constantly bursting forth into praise as the rocks would do on the road to Jerusalem. Now to illustrate this, Jesus uses two parables, two, two images, and I want you to see them both here. A wedding, he talks about first, in verses 34 and 35, and then wine in verses 36 through 39. So life with Jesus is like a wedding. That's what he says. Look down in verses 34 and 35. He says, can you make, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So in John 3, John the Baptist uses a similar illustration, calling Jesus the bridegroom and himself the friend of the bridegroom or the best man. So this image is everywhere in the Gospels. Both Jesus and John use the image of a wedding to describe the time of Jesus' ministry because it is a common Old Testament illusion also. I love, I love the current stage we're going through as a church. Uh, I, I think I've done nine weddings in the past six months, something like that. Uh, so many weddings, and most of them, most of the time, they're occasions of great joy, at least that's how it should be, and we know this. But my favorite part of, of, the, of doing a wedding is to watch the wedding party as they enjoy one another and enjoy making much of the bride and groom. It was the, my favorite part of my own wedding, too. I, I tell young couples that I marry, it's the one time in your life where everybody you love is all in the same place, and it's all about you. Enjoy it. It's never going to happen ever again. Everybody you love, all in one place, and they all have to do what you want to do. Like, can it get any better than that? It really wasn't my own wedding. It was, it was such a blast. All the showers and the parties and the rehearsal dinner and the reception. My mom was there. My college friends were all there. We just had so much fun together going from celebration to celebration. And that's exactly the picture of what's happening with Jesus and his disciples here. But he says, not only, not only is life with Jesus like a wedding, but the second image he uses is the image of wine, beginning in verse 37 and down. His life in ministry is new wine. I mean, that's what the prophets said, that the days of Messiah would be a time from Amos, we read it, when the mountains would drip with sweet wine. Now, you've got to understand, I grew up in a very conservative church. Okay? The church covenant of the church of my childhood, which we recited publicly on occasion, says this, we will abstain from the sale and the use of intoxicating drinks as a beverage and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of God. Okay, we knew. We knew that when Jesus turned the water into wine, it was really grape juice. (laughs) Let's be honest. And we weren't allowed to drink wine, and so my parents never did, but I knew, uh, and I, I knew what it did to people. Everybody knew what it did to people. I mean, Psalm 104.15 says that God has made wine to gladden the heart of man, and we were very opposed to that. (laughs) Right? (laughs) I mean, that's bad. That's when bad things happen. Right? So it's no coincidence that there was very little joy in the Christianity of my youth. Now, I'm not trashing that church, it was good to me. I'm not advocating drinking alcohol. That's another sermon. I'm trying to advocate for what the wine is a symbol of, the new wine of Jesus' joyful kingdom. And in these two images, the image of wedding and the image of wine, come together in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, at the wedding of Cana, which is Jesus' first miracle where you probably remember the story. He turns the clay pots, the six clay water pots into wine. And not just any kind of wine, but they come to him at the end and say, it's the very best kind of wine. 
And that was his first sign, John says. Not just a miracle, but a sign. In other words, it was an explanation of what he came into the world to do. Okay? That that he came to bring joy. Now, a couple of applications of this first point before I move on. And the first would be just this. That we learn something also about the measure of our joy from the way this text plays out. And that is that you're not there... You're not there. You're not experiencing the kind of joy and freedom that Jesus longs for you to experience. And I'm a little nervous to say this. But you're not quite there until the people, the religious people in your life start to get a little uncomfortable. If the Pharisees are starting to worry about you, then you're close. You know you're close. Okay, but listen. Pharisees, legalists, not wise, balanced, moderate, mature people. If those people start to worry about you, then you should probably start to worry about you too a little bit. But if the Pharisees and the religious people in your life are starting to get a little uncomfortable, it's probably because you're getting close to the joy and the freedom, the eating and the drinking that Jesus not only desires but commands. But a second application that we have to be really careful before we move on any further into the sermon, and that is just this, that we have to see this. The Pharisees praying and fasting, the disciples eating and drinking, we need to see a balance between these two things, a balance between rigorous discipline and self-denial and also celebration. This is a both and, not an either or type of thing, fasting and feasting. And in Matthew 11, Jesus said it best, John the Baptist he said, lived a very disciplined lifestyle, and they criticized him and said he had a demon. Jesus came eating and drinking, and they called him a glutton and a drunkard. And that's how you know you found the balance. Here's what happens. There are people who think you're too uptight, and then there are people who worry about you because in, your mind, uh, you like to have, in their mind you like to have a little too much fun. Both at the same time. You get it from both sides at the same time. If, but see, if only one of those things is true and not the other, then be careful. If everybody in your life is saying, you know, I think you ought to really slow down a little bit. Or if everybody in your life is saying, you know, you're way too uptight. That's when you've got a problem. But if there's both, if you're getting it from both sides, then you know that the gospel lifestyle is starting to really come out of your life. But I'm getting away from the point a little bit. Okay, so let's go to the second. Let's go to the second thing. If that's what, see, we're made for this kind of joy, this kind of feasting and celebrating. And so why is it so hard to come by then? What do we learn here about why it is that this is so elusive for us? See, the worry of the Pharisees and the religious leaders over the eating and drinking of Jesus and his disciples shows us that there's something very wrong with us, that we have such a hard time with joy. But why? Why? And the answer from this text is that if there's no joy in your life, it's because you don't see yourself as a beggar. The key to joy is to see yourself rightly. That's the Pharisees' problem. See, the tax collectors and the sinners are eating and drinking with Jesus. They're enjoying the wedding reception, but the Pharisees and the religious people won't join in. And this isn't the only time we see this, okay, in the Scripture. I mean, it's everywhere. Think, think of the end of the parable of the prodigal son. There's a feast at the end of that parable, too. And there's one son who's come in to enjoy the feast with his father, and there's one who's outside and refuses to come. And it's the wayward you know, immoral, but yet repentant and received back into the family son who's inside, and it's the moral, dutiful, always done the right thing son who refuses to come in. The wayward, irresponsible one, the one that is a moral failure, the sinner is the one who's at the party. Because that's the, that's the key to joy. So I want to say something. If the church is empty of joy, it's because it's empty of sinners. 
If a church is empty of joy, it's because it's empty of sinners, plain and simple. I mean, isn't that what Jesus just said? Look at verse 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Who are the healthy ones? The religious people. And who are the sick? They're the tax collectors and the Pharisees. But what's wrong with that? Is it true? Is that way of looking at that phrase true? Of course not. Because the difference between the Pharisees and the tax collectors is not that the Pharisee is spiritually healthy and the tax collector is spiritually sick. That's what the Pharisees believed, but that's not true. The truth is that both the Pharisee and the tax collector are spiritually sick, but only the tax collector knows this. Only the tax collector knows how much he needs Jesus, and that's why they were the ones that got so excited to be invited to the table. You see that? What separates the tax collector from the Pharisee? It's that the tax collector sees himself rightly and the Pharisee doesn't. The tax collector knows how much he needs Jesus. He's desperate. And that's where, that's where his joy comes from. That's where it comes from. Charles Spurgeon illustrated this well, and I have to come back to this later probably in our series and use it again before we're done in Luke. But it's worth, it's worth noting now. He said that if you're going to throw a feast... Number one rule in throwing a feast is you always want to invite the poor and the beggars to come. He said, because the reason is, is that the prim and proper ladies who attend the feast make, you know, in comes the food, and they may raise their eyebrows a bit and mutter, hmm, that looks interesting. You know, and they may pick suspiciously at the food with their fork and complain about the service and so forth, but not the beggars. If you invite a beggar to the feast, they are so amazed they're even at the table that they cheer for every dish. Whoa, look at that turkey! You know, those are the best green beans I've ever had in my life. Can you believe, you know, they're just looking around. They're so amazed they're even here. Did you see that? Hooray for the turkey, right? Beggars cheered every plate because they know they shouldn't be there. Spurgeon went on to say that if there's no feasting in your life, if you're not cheering for every dish, it's because you don't see yourself as a beggar. I mean, the reason we're not amazed at every good thing in our life, the reason we're not cheering at every plate, the reason we go through life grumbling like the Pharisees instead of eating and drinking is because we view the good things in our life not as gifts but as wages. We think we deserve what we have or maybe even better. See, it's not our sins. It's not our sins that keep us from the joy of the kingdom of heaven. It's our righteousness. And if you believe that salvation is by grace, if you really believe that, 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 um, that you deserve outer darkness, but God has given you life and breath and a job that gives you money and kids that are healthy and friends that love you and a house that doesn't have a dirt floor and cars to drive where you need to go, if you believe all of those things are God's gracious gift and you deserve none of them, then you'll be feasting, you'll be cheering at every plate. And so the doctrine becomes very clear to us, and it is this, that joy malfunctions in us when we take the new wine of gospel grace and freedom and try to put it into the old wineskins of religion. Jesus says, verses 36 through 38, no one tears a piece of new garment and puts it on an old garment. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, he says. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. See, the new wine of gospel grace says, it's not being good that makes you right with God. It's not going to church. It's not your obedience, it's not your faith, it's not even your choice, it's God's choice of you. 
There's nothing in you that is merited the love and the acceptance of God. Salvation is utterly beginning to end by his grace. It is a gift of God, not by works. So being good doesn't get you an invitation. Being bad doesn't keep you off the guest list. But John's disciples and the Pharisees, they're fasting and they're praying. We know this from history because they're trying to make themselves worthy. They believed, it was their worldview, they believed that Messiah wouldn't come until Israel proved to be worthy. And so they fasted and they prayed and they fasted and they prayed and they were exacting in their obedience because they believed that God was waiting for them to show their loyalty and their devotion to him before he came to their rescue. And yet here he is and they won't join in. And the lesson is that the way, their way of life is incompatible with the kingdom of grace. And that's why they're so void of joy. In our community Bible reading this past week, we read the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew chapter 22, and I hope you're reading along with us. Uh, It's a great story. It's the last in a series of three parables, actually, that Jesus uses in Matthew 21 and 22 in the last week of his life to explain why the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem hated him so much. So it's a very similar situation here to here in Matthew 5, where the morally bankrupt and the social outcasts are flocking and embracing him and celebrating him and the religious and the political conservatives are plotting to kill him. And Jesus tells a story there of a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent his messengers, his servants, out into the kingdom to call those who were invited to come to the feast, but they wouldn't come. These are the religious people. They, the, they, um, the people who know their Bible and who know all about Messiah, they receive their invitation. They've rsvp that they're coming, but when it's time for the wedding, they don't come. And not only do they refuse to come, but... They mistreat and even kill the king's servants who've been sent to bring them into the feast. And so the king sends his servant out again. This time he tells them to bring back as many people as they could find. And they did. And they went out and they gathered. And this is the key phrase in Matthew's gospel. They gathered both bad and good and brought them to the wedding feast. Luke changes it when he tells the story. He says that they they gathered the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Because that's Luke's theology. And the wedding hall was filled. Now, Jesus uses the parable to explain why the religious leaders and the Pharisees and all the people who should be embracing his ministry and joining the celebration, why they won't. And the reason is, is they're upset that tax collectors and other sinners are on the guest list. Why would you eat with tax collectors, they say? Why would you do that? They don't like that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of grace. And that's the new wine. That both the good and the bad are invited, both Pharisee and tax collector. Salvation is by grace. Listen, Jesus did not come because they were righteous. He came because they weren't. He came to be righteous for us, to live the life that we should have lived and to die the death that we should have died. But only those who know they're sick will go to him for healing. And only those who know they aren't righteous find righteousness in him. And that leads us to the last point. Then if this is the reason why we're so void of the joy that Jesus longs to give us, then how, how can we experience this joy? How can we enter into this new life of joy and celebration that Jesus offers? And the answer from the text, and it's really what the text is all about, the answer is, verse 32, repentance. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the key. That's the key to the whole passage. What matters is not whether you're good or bad. What, it doesn't matter whether you're a Pharisee or a tax collector. What matters is repentance. Luke 15, 7 says this. Jesus is, is, it's quoting Jesus as saying, 
that there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. You know what that means? Listen, you know what that means? You do something really great. I mean, listen, teenagers, you do something really great. You do something heroic. You sacrifice for somebody else. You know, you let your brother play the Xbox instead of you getting to play the Xbox. Right? Something really big. And you, and you know what happens? You know what happens? You do something like that. The, I mean, the greatest feat you've ever done in your life. You know what happens in heaven? This is what happens in heaven. Golf clap. But listen. But you screw up really big. I mean, really big. And then on the other side of the big mess that you've made, you repent. What happens in heaven then? Dancing in the streets. Do you see? Do you get that? Do you, I mean, do we believe that? I wonder. I mean, I wonder. Do we believe that? That the key to heaven's joy is repentance. And that's exactly what Jesus teaches us here. But what we need to be careful. What, does, what, what Jesus doesn't mean is this. When Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, he doesn't mean that the righteous don't need to be called to repentance, but that sinners do. no. No, 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 that's not it at all. We miss the entire point if we, think, if we think that. What Jesus does mean is that people who know that they are sinners repent of their sins. It's pretty straightforward. But listen, but those who think of themselves as righteous have to first repent of their righteousness and become sinners before they can repent of their sins. Or to put it another way, Jesus says, I only deal with sinners. I only deal with sinners. Both tax collectors and Pharisees are sinners, but the difference is the tax collector knows this and the Pharisee doesn't. So, the tax collector is only one step away from joy. The tax collector is one step away to repent of his sins and then there's joy. But the Pharisee, like me, and like many of you because I know you, the religious people, there are at least two steps. The first is to repent of our righteousness, to become a sinner, then to repent of our sins, and then there's joy. It's a harder work. It's a, much, it's a much harder work. And so let's just apply this, and then we're going to come to the table this morning. I want to make three applications. I want you to see, first, the absolute necessity of repentance for feasting. It's why Jesus said, I've come to call sinners to repentance. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, please hear me. If you would turn away from your sins and turn to Jesus, if you will stop trying to do life on your own and turn away from all of the things that you're looking to to make you happy apart from him, And if you'll give your life to him and live in obedience to his commands, then your life will become filled with feasting. But if you're here and you call yourself a Christian, but if you were totally honest, there's little to no feasting in your life. Before you can repent of your sins, you have to first repent of your righteousness. You have to confess that there's a part of you that hates grace and is constantly trying to go back under the law to try to earn your salvation through good works. You have to repent of taking the new wine of the gospel, grace and freedom, and trying to put it back in and fit it into the old wineskins of religion. Repenting of righteousness means you stop trying to be righteous on your own. You stop being proud when you get it right. You stop despairing when you get it wrong. You stop trying to do it on your own. There's an absolute necessity. But secondly, not only the necessity, but the scope. The scope of repentance 
is this idea of whole life transformation. You see, I'm old enough to remember my mom, believe it or not, trying to patch my jeans when I was a kid. So you'd go out and play in the yard and you'd rip your jeans and your mom would take this little thing and patch them up, right? Jesus says that doesn't work. We try to patch, we try a patch of Jesus, some little problem in our life, some little cut or scrape or bruise we get and it tears the cloth and we try to go to Jesus and we think if we can just get a little patch and sew it on to the little place where it's been, you know, damaged and, and, you know, just keep it confined to that little area of our life to fix some little problem we're having, that would be the best thing. But what we want to do in that is to contain them to just one area and Jesus says it won't work. The, the word that dominates the verses in this passage are, are, is the word new. New garment, new wine, new wineskin. Six times this word new. So we need to understand repentance doesn't describe the work of patching up the old. It is the work of becoming something entirely new. Whole life transformation, nothing less. But then lastly, as we come to the table, see also the promise of repentance. And it's just this, that as you feast on grace, the good news is your taste buds begin to change. Look down at verse 39. Jesus says, No one after drinking the old wine desires the new. For he says, The old is good, the old is better. I have, I have a praise report today. I ate broccoli for dinner last night and actually enjoyed it. Okay, listen, you don't understand what a win that is for me, okay? If you eat things that are bad for you, you won't want to eat the things that are good for you. You have to eat things you don't like that are good for you, and over time, you develop a taste for them. At least they tell me that's true, although I don't know that I really believe it. Jesus is teaching us this. We have a preference for the old wine. Grace is bitter at first. And that's what verse 39 means, that our hearts are always wanting to go back to what we're used to, to doing life on our own terms. And that's why this meal that we eat together is such an opportunity and such a blessing. Here's the invitation as we come to this table. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He means to use this meal to change our taste buds, to make grace sweet to us, because that is the key to our joy. And so let's pray as we come to the table this morning. Father, we thank you for the good work you continue to do towards us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray that as we gather around this table together this morning, that you would do just that, that you would give us a taste of your grace, the sweetness of your love and your mercy to us, and that it would result in the eruption of joy in our hearts, a joy that would overcome our despair and our sorrow, a joy that would buoy us up against the things that life uh, throws at us that seem to keep us so locked into fear and worry and depression. We need joy, Father, and so we pray that as we gather around your table together this morning that you would give it to us so that we might be a people that would bear fruit, that would glorify and honor you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The promise of that song is the promise of the gospel uh, that we have been forgiven and set free by the blood of Jesus. And so we are free to be honest and to be truthful about who we really are and how much we need him. And, And the irony is, is that it's the hardest thing in the world to do, but just on the other side of that confession and that honesty is the power and the joy we so desperately need. So the promise of this benediction is just that, that that no matter who we are, if we turn to him in repentance and faith, he stands ready to bless. That's That's what this means when I put my hands over you. That the Father is ready and willing to bless and indeed promises in the word of this benediction to do just that. So receive the benediction. Uh, Go rejoicing and repenting today. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in his peace.